Welcome to the second episode of Shrinking Stigma, a podcast series funded by the Alberta Medical Association. The series is aimed at debunking some of the myths and misconceptions surrounding the profession of psychiatry while concurrently educating society about our specialty. My name is Dr. Sheila Acharya, and I'm a resident at the University of Calgary. I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Jonathan Dornian. Our podcast today is entitled, What Right Do You Have Anyway? And the goal is to address questions around our ability as physicians and psychiatrists to hold people in hospital without their consent. I think that that's an incredibly important question for us to answer. In my experience as a resident working in the emergency room of the hospital, I have had occasions when a patient has been sent to the hospital by a physician colleague or brought into hospital by loved ones, the ambulance or the police because of acute mental distress. And in some of those instances, after completing my psychiatric assessment, I have felt it would be important for the person to remain in hospital so that we ensure they do not deteriorate further or do anything dangerous to themselves or others. However, the person is not always in agreement with me on that point, often because their distress is such that they can't see or think clearly about their circumstances. In such cases, due to legislation in this province, I have had the ability to ensure that the healthcare team deems the person formal so that they have to remain in hospital. But as you can imagine, stripping people of their basic rights in this way can be very jarring for a patient. As such, I think it's very important that we explain why we have this authority. So then, to answer the question, what right do you have anyway, I am going to tell a story. It was 1968 at the University of California, Berkeley. A young 18-year-old woman by the name of Tatiana Tarasov was attending a folk dance in the mustard-colored auditorium of a residence on campus called International House. International House was home to students from all over the world. One such student was a young man named Prasenjit Podar. He was a graduate student from India who was at Berkeley to study naval architecture while also working part-time as an inspector of marine structures. From the first time he laid eyes on Tarasov, Podar was taken by her. However, he had come from a place and culture where courtship was not the norm, and so it took him several efforts to work up the courage to speak to her. He eventually did, and the two started seeing each other by going for pizza and watching movies. However, the relationship quickly ran into trouble, likely due to Mr. Podar's inexperiences, but also probably due to his mental instability. Podar misread and misunderstood many of the signals that Ms. Tarasov was giving him during their brief relationship. Consequently, her interest in Podar started to wane, and this rejection led to some serious changes in his behavior. In the subsequent months, he sank into a deep depression, often skipping work and school and rarely leaving his room. While Tarasov did engage with Podar, it was with platonic intentions. Podar continued to struggle with this, and his frustration grew. He would show up at her house, call her incessantly, and show her the journal entries he had made about her. 
As this did not help to change the nature of the relationship to a more romantic one, which is what he desired, his frustrations turned to anger, and at one point it is said that he told co-workers that he would like to blow up Tarasov's home. At the insistence of a friend, Podar eventually sought help at a campus mental health clinic where he was treated by a psychiatrist named Dr. Larry Moore. Dr. Moore was instantly concerned by the way Podar spoke about Tarasov, and at numerous points early into psychotherapy, he questioned whether or not he should break doctor-patient confidentiality. His concerns revolved around the increasingly deranged threats on Tarasov's life that Podar was making in his office, and he wondered if he should inform someone. He did eventually take steps to inform campus security at the University of California, Berkeley. However, he stopped there as he did not feel he was in a position to further break his oath of doctor-patient confidentiality and took solace in the fact that Podar had never previously been violent. He ended up addressing his concerns with Podar directly and requested that he cease all communication with Tarasov in the hopes of helping to defuse the situation. Podar agreed to take these steps, but soon after stopped going to therapy with Dr. Moore. Approximately two months later, Podar showed up at Tarasov's house extremely agitated. He did not leave when she asked, but instead pulled out a pellet gun and shot her in her torso. Tarasov started to scream, and Podar then pulled out a 13-inch butcher knife and stabbed her eight times. He subsequently called the police and said, I just stabbed my girlfriend. Tarasov was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. Charges were laid against Podar, and he was convicted of second-degree murder. However, in the course of the criminal legal proceedings, it became clear to the family that the university mental health professionals at Berkeley, and specifically Dr. Larry Moore, knew about Podar's plan to kill Tarasov. They therefore brought a wrongful death civil lawsuit against the University of California. That led to two legal decisions, known as Tarasov 1 and 2, decisions that ultimately paved the way for the current rights and legal obligations psychiatrists possess in countless jurisdictions throughout the world. So thank you for sharing that story, Sheila. I think it really highlights some of the challenges that we we face in our profession. So what were the rights and responsibilities of psychiatrists prior to the Tarasov cases? Prior to the decisions in the Tarasov cases, confidentiality between patient and doctor was deemed paramount to any third-party interests. In fact, the Hippocratic Oath that all physicians take prior to starting the practice of medicine includes the following dictate. Whatsoever things I see or hear concerning the life of men, in my attendance on the sick, I will keep silence thereon, counting such things to be as sacred as secrets. In other words, as doctors, we pledge to keep our patients' information confidential. The hope is that if patients feel safe and protected in telling us what ails them and free from judgment or penalty, 
we as doctors will be able to gather the best information to provide a proper diagnosis and management plan. As a consequence, the principles introduced by the Tarasov cases, that physicians may have a duty to breach confidentiality when third parties are at risk, had a significant influence on the practice of medicine in general and psychiatry in specific. Tarasov 1 and 2 established what is now known as our duty to inform or warn, as well as our duty to protect. In fact, Tarasov 1, the facts established that Dr. Moore had obtained information from Podar that Tarasov was at risk based on the depth of the threats and the proximity of the patient to the victim, the courts held that there existed a duty on the part of the clinician to warn the intended victim who was at risk, even if that meant breaking confidentiality. In Tarasov too, the ultimate appeal to the California Supreme Court, this concept was extended to state that a duty to protect supersedes a duty to warn. The implication here is that warning in itself may not ultimately be sufficient to protect the victim. Additional steps may need to be taken by a physician. What form the action is taken in is based on the clinical assessment conducted by a psychiatrist and the direction they feel is proper to take. For instance, as psychiatrists, we can pick up the phone and, an, and advise an intended victim of the potential harm in the hopes of protecting them. However, as this could lead to other unforeseen circumstances, we also have an alternative manner in which to deal with these types of issues. Since the Tarasov cases, laws have been put in place in countries around the world that allow psychiatrists to hold a patient in hospital without their consent if they are suffering from a mental illness and are posing a significant threat to themselves or others. The purpose of holding these patients is to further assess, stabilize, and treat them so that they can become well enough to be reintegrated back into the community without fear of harm to themselves or others. Okay, but these cases were in California. Are there laws in Alberta that allow you to do this? Yes. The specific legislation that gives this authority to psychiatrists in Alberta is called the Mental Health Act. The document that needs to be filled out is called the Form 1. And in order for it to have validity, we need to show three things. Number one, the person is suffering from a mental illness. Number two, the person poses a threat to themselves or others. And number three, the person is unwilling to stay in hospital voluntarily and therefore requires to become a formal patient. Furthermore, even if a person meets this criteria, it is important to note that any patient placed under formal status does have the right to appeal the certification. Now, as one can imagine, this departure from the baseline of doctor-patient confidentiality has not been without criticism by some camps. Concern has been raised that approaching patients in this way will decrease their willingness to be open and frank with their, phys frank with their physician. However, given the gravity of how ill some patients can be, 
and the threat that this can place on their own health and safety, as well as that of others, it seems reasonable and necessary. In the words of Justice Matthew O. Tobriner, California Supreme Court, the protective privilege ends where the public peril begins. Additionally, think of the life Podar may have led if he received timely mental health treatment. There is a possibility that two lives may have been saved had Tarasov and Podar lived in our current legislative times. And so, as it stands, psychiatrists are tasked with a dual duty to help treat some of our communities most ill and vulnerable while also ensuring we are protecting the public. It is an incredibly privileged role that we work daily to balance to ensure that we are respecting a patient's privacy and their rights as individuals while also ensuring that their health and safety and that of the community is being carefully guarded. Wow. Thank you for that, Sheila. And I think with that, we can actually conclude this episode. I'd like to invite you back to check out our podcast on iTunes for the next episode, which will be, aren't psychiatric patients all dangerous? Thank you.